Thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Jeremiah 48, verse 10, reads as follows. Cursed be the one who does the Lord's work negligently. You may be wondering, why are you so upbeat today, Pastor? Cursed be the one who does the work of the Lord negligently is the way in which the New American Standard interprets that last word negligently. Some of you have the English Standard Version and instead of negligence, negligently, it says with slackness. There's another translation which says deceitfully. So which is right? Well, this word which is translated negligently in the New American Standard and other ways by other translations is a word which has nuances to its meaning. And we need to understand the context of this statement written by Jeremiah, who lived in a very difficult time, and he had perhaps the most difficult of all assignments to be the prophet of God to the nation of Judah, but also to the world. Do you remember his call? He was called as a young man. We don't know exactly what his age was, but he is described as a youth. That was his own understanding of who he was. Perhaps he was in his late teens or early 20s. And he was told by God, I am going to give you the assignment. In fact, God said, before I formed you in your mother's womb, I knew you. And the assignment which I have for you is that you will be a prophet to the nations. We know Jeremiah was a weeper. He's known as the weeping prophet. A book that follows Jeremiah is Lamentations. And most scholars believe that Lamentations really was a part of the prophecy that we know as Jeremiah. And this man had a tough life. And he comes here and there's no bitterness coming out of his own soul. He's under inspiration of the Holy Spirit making this statement. Cursed be the one who does the Lord's work negligently. Now I'm going to give you my interpretation, which is informed by the study that I have made. And it is my way of understanding this and applying it to my life. Cursed is the one who does the work of the Lord half-heartedly. Is it possible to do the work of the Lord half-heartedly? Let me give you an example. A king of Judah by the name of Amaziah. His story is told in 2 Chronicles chapter 25. And he is described in this way. Amaziah did what was right in the sight of the Lord, but not with a whole heart. Do you know it's possible? to cross every T and dot every I of what God would tell us to do and go through the motions at least as doing what he says to do and be cursed because we're doing it with less than a whole heart. 
to flip this statement, cursed is the one who does the Lord's work negligently or half-heartedly, would be to say, blessed is the one who does the Lord's work wholeheartedly. We hear God speaking to another king of Judah, Asa, in the book of 2 Chronicles. And this is what he says, The eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. Quite a contrast, isn't it? And certainly what I would hope for my life and I would hope for our church is this year. We would be done with all half-heartedness. And we would fully embrace a wholehearted commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. This does not mean that we will be perfect. There is none perfect. No, not one. We know that. On Jesus is the only one who is perfect. But he empowers us, as we're going to see, to live a life in keeping with his will. Therefore, in keeping with what God, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are all pleased by in our lives. Let's think together for a moment about this phrase, the Lord's work or the work of the Lord. What is the work of the Lord? Jesus says in John 9 verse 4, we must work the works of him who sent us while it is day, night is coming when no one can work. The Lord wants us to be men and women in Christ who team up with Christ and others who are equally yoked with Christ and we follow Christ and do His work. There's a certain urgency, isn't there, about Jesus' statement, we must work the works of Him who sent me while it is day, night is coming when no one can work. Certainly there is. And the work of the Lord is a good work. We know that the Bible speaks about our letting our light shine. Those of us who know Christ, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Please note that in that same section of Scripture, which we commonly call the Sermon on the Mount, he has some strong words for the religious leaders of the day known as the Pharisees. And he warns his disciples in this teaching of the Sermon on the Mount, it was directed toward followers of Christ, disciples of Christ, not to be limited to the apostles. The apostles were present. They had not yet be, been singled out to be apostles, but it was for all of them, and by association, it's for us today. We who know Jesus are followers of Christ. That's the simple understanding of what a disciple is and a person who makes it her or his intention to follow Christ all the time. Not be a sometime follower, but an all the time follower of Jesus Christ. And the Pharisees, he didn't have very kind words for, understandably. They did look carefully the work of the Lord. They were people who were meticulous in keeping every little bit of the law. The problem was that they superimposed their traditions on the Word of God. In fact, they had elevated their traditions to a place 
that made the Word of God subservient to their traditions. And he says about them in Matthew 6, he says, do not practice your righteousness before men as the Pharisees do to be noticed by men. And so we know the work is good, but good work can be bad work. Now, I know I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth at the same time, but I hope you understand when I say good work can be bad work if it's done to draw attention to anyone other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, we understand more fully about this matter of good work. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. I cannot help but think when Jesus said your good works, he may have emphasized your as opposed to the religious leaders of the day who were simply doing their good works to get the applause of man and gave no thought to the honor of God. The Bible says about these good works that we are to do and let our light shine. Have you ever stopped to think that we, like the moon is to the sun, we are like to Jesus? And Jesus is the light of the world. And he says, we are the light of the world. That light in us is not something that we're born with. It's something that we receive. It's more than something. It's someone whom we receive. Namely, Jesus, who is the light of the world. He comes to indwell us. And when we depend upon him, and remember, this is a good work, but it's also a faith work, the kind of work that blesses God. Because Jesus is approached in the Gospel of John and he is asked, what shall we do so that we may work the works of God? Did you come here today? Or maybe as we begun to think together about what the Scripture says, with a desire to do the works of God, not to waste our lives, but to do them in such a way that the impact of Christ in and through us will impact our generation and generations to come. And this is the obvious intent of the question that was raised to Jesus by a group found in John 6, 28 and 29. Listen to what Jesus says. This is the work of God that you believe in Him whom He has sent. It's good work because it's faith work. What is faith? Where does faith come from? How do we have such faith? Well, Jesus is described as saying that this faith is that which is in keeping with the will of God the Father. Paul writes in the book of Romans, faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. Whatever is not of faith, Paul also says in the book of Romans, 14th chapter, 23rd verse, is sin. So the bottom line of sin is unbelief. We do not believe what God says about Himself and about us in the Word of God. And so we deviate from the pathway of trusting in Him with all our heart, refusing to lean on our own understanding, in all our ways acknowledging Him and therefore discovering the path 
that He has established for us to walk by faith in. In Ephesians 2.10, the Bible says, God created us in Christ Jesus for what purpose? To do good works which He prepared in advance for us to do. Hearkening back to Jeremiah, God had a plan for him before he even formed Jeremiah in his womb. Was that unique to Jeremiah? Or could it be that this would be true for you and me too? This makes us significant. We don't know how significant we could be and are meant to be if we have that kind of life that is a life based upon dependence on the Lord, faith in the Lord, coming from the truth of God's Word, empowered by the Holy Spirit to accomplish the mission that He has given us just as surely, I'm going to go on record, just as surely as there was a purpose which God the Father had prior to Jeremiah being conceived in his mother's womb, it's true for you if you know Him. You are a person of great worth, not because there's anything inherently good in you. In fact, there's no righteousness in us. The Bible says there is none righteous, no, not one. But then the Lord in His grace and mercy stoops and saves us. While we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. What a gospel. The rest of what I'm going to share with you is what God's been speaking to my own heart about about things I need to take care of as a child of God, as a follower of Christ, not simply a pastor. I would elevate the role of disciple above that of a pastor any day. And it's something that we all are to be as followers of Jesus. As one of my professors in seminary would tell us frequently, he wanted us to remember it, and I'm sure all of us who had him as our professor do remember it. He said, men and ladies, all ground is level at the cross. Isn't that good to know? So I'm going to give you some nouns. There are six nouns, and this is just suggestive for me, and it's applicable to all of us because it's in the Bible. You, I would hope, would do your own further investigation as a result of this time of thinking together and listening for the voice of the Lord. The first word is priority. And priority, the priority that we are to have is to give glory to God. Isaiah 43, 7 tells us that God created us for His glory. Not to us, O oh Lord, not to us, but to your name be glory. That's what the psalmist writes in Psalm 115. And I'm reminded also of what we read about, really, that Daniel said. And Nebuchadnezzar was elated. Finally, he had someone among the soothsayers. Finally, someone who could tell him the dream and explain it to him and then to talk about the fulfillment of it. And he just was really honored to have had that be told to him by this young man. Here again, God uses young people 
maybe more than older people. I don't know if there's any difference, but what I do know is this man, Daniel, what was his response when Nebuchadnezzar began to extol him? He said, my king, my liege, my sovereign in earth, I have someone who is able to tell you, I don't have it in me to do it, in my natural ability, but God will tell you, and God did tell him, he gave the glory to the Lord. We're to glorify the Lord in all areas of our lives, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we're to do it all for the glory of God. Now, let me pause just a moment. That's sort of a nebulous idea, the glory of God. So let me give you a simpler expression of that, and it's accurate, I believe, for the honor of God, that we may boast in God and mean it when we boast in God. We are not intent upon drawing attention to ourselves. In Proverbs 27, verse 2, the Bible says, Let another one praise you and not your own mouth. That's hard, isn't it? Sometimes. It's so hard. The Bible says in Proverbs 25, 27, It's not for you to glory, but to search out the glory of God in your life and let somebody else say something positive about you. And the goal would be to get to the point where you or I never think about getting any kind of credit, any kind of gratitude, just grateful that we are servants of the Most High God. We're to focus on the Lord and not ourselves. John the Baptist, the man whom Jesus described as being the man among whom there was none greater regarding the prophets. Wow, what an accolade Jesus gave to his cousin, the man who had baptized him. You may recall, after the first chapter of John, John the Baptist began to wane in popularity. If you look at the Gospel of Matthew, it talks about how people were coming from Jerusalem, Judea, so everywhere. They were coming from everywhere into the wilderness to see this man who was a prophet and hear what he had to say. And they were being baptized. It was a baptism of repentance, remember, and how Jesus came to him. And after Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, we don't hear a lot more about him, do we? My favorite passage about John the Baptist is found in John chapter 3. It's overshadowed, and rightly so perhaps, by the teaching of Jesus on being born again to Nicodemus and believing in him and having eternal life and how that is an expression of God's great love for us that he gave his only begotten son. But in the last part of chapter 3, we are introduced to John the Baptist again. And he is approached by some of his disciples. And they say to him, Rabbi, everyone is leaving us and you to follow him. Don't you think by, these words aren't there, but I'm sure it was in their thinking. 
couldn't you take some of that back so that we would get a little attention? You would is really what they were saying, but they really were thinking about themselves more than they were about John the Baptist. Because as long as John the Baptist was the main attraction in religious life in the nation of Israel, they were getting a lot of kudos themselves. But what did he say? He drew a comparison between himself and Jesus this way. He said, I'm the best man. And according to Jewish tradition, when a marriage was arranged, the best man was responsible for getting all things together. A place for the wedding, getting the food together, getting the invitations sent out, everything. And the bridegroom would just be there. And then the biggest thing the friend of the bridegroom did, he made arrangements for the bride to be brought to the bridegroom. And he said, once that best friend has done that for the bridegroom and the bride, then he has done his job and he is elated. And he said, I'm that to Jesus. I have done my work. And he had, hadn't he? Fulfilling the prophecy in Malachi chapter four about Elijah coming. He was not Elijah, we know that but he had the same kind of mission. He was the forerunner of the Messiah. And then he makes this simple statement about himself. He said, I must decrease. He must increase. I must decrease. That's a picture of a person who wants to bring glory to God. That we understand who he is and whom he has chosen us to become, and we are the friends of the bridegroom. Aren't you glad that he chose you to be your friend? His friend, rather, so that you could cooperate with him in his great mission. Priority. If we go no further, and we do this, glorify the Lord, honor him. Like Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, 5, he says, about himself and his compadres, he said, we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus, now listen, as Lord. What does that mean? Exactly what it says. It corresponds to what Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. He says, sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart. That's how you and I have a wholehearted relationship to the Lord. We set apart Christ as Lord in our heart. It's a deliberate act on our part, and it's something we have to repeat. Why? Because as I mentioned earlier, we still sin, don't we? We do. What does the Bible say? When I sin, am I done? Do I have to get saved all over again? No. Because the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable once we come to know Jesus Christ. He himself says, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. He says, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give eternal life to them and they shall never perish. No one shall take them out of my hand. So when I sin and I don't keep track, it'd be depressing if I kept track. 
of all my sins, if I wrote them down. But I know at least every day, probably multiple times, I'll find myself in a sinful thought or a sinful action or neglecting what God wants me to be and do. And then I'll come before the Lord, not nonchalantly, but humbly, but also expectantly, because all of the good promises of God have continued to be fulfilled. And one that I love, if I confess my sin, He is faithful and just to forgive my sin and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. And then I say, Lord. That's my favorite way of addressing Jesus, Lord. It's a reminder that He's my King. I am His slave, not just a servant. Let's get the word right. It's the word slave of Jesus Christ. What an honor to be a slave of Jesus and have that kind of relationship where He is uncommon as our Master because He goes to bat for us every time we do sin as believers. He lives to make intercession for us. He pleads our case before our Father in heaven. Priority. Here's the second word, the noun, prayer. That's a priority, isn't it? I won't linger long here. But I just remind you of 1 Thessalonians 5.17. Pray without ceasing. What does that really mean? It means to live in an atmosphere of prayer. Always in conversation, listening. And conversation is two-way. I hope you know that. Good conversation is not one way. In fact, the best conversationalist is a person who doesn't say much, but listens very carefully to the Lord and to other people, for that matter. And so the word pray without ceasing carries with it the idea of praying given every opportunity that comes your way. When we meet people to talk with them, we can pray. We can do it out loud if we want to, but in your heart, you can pray. Encounters that we have throughout the day with different people, some whom we don't know, we can pray for them. We listen to the Lord. God speaks to our hearts and we respond accordingly and we pray without ceasing. If we're going to be people who do the work of the Lord properly, that yields a blessing, we will show our wholeheartedness by praying without ceasing. Here's a third word, preparation. We must be prepared at all times. I'm not a Boy Scout. I never even had any ambition to be a Boy Scout. I admire the Scouts. The founder of the Scouts, you may know, was Lieutenant General Baden Powell. And before Boy Scouts were even formed, he wrote a book about scouting in the early 1900s. And he gave a motto for the Scouts even before there were Scouts as a formal group. What is it? Be prepared. There's more to it than just be prepared, though. And he indicated that his men, young men, will be prepared 
ready in mind and body to do your duty. If that's true for a secular organization that has its roots in deism, I would say at least, certainly it's true for us, isn't it, to be prepared? In the book of 2 Timothy, Paul giving instruction to his son in the faith, whom he loved dearly, who would be his successor in many ways. And in his last recorded words written to another human being, which we have access to, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he says, be prepared in season and out of season. In other words, don't wing it. We're not to wing the Christian life. If there's anything I'm to be serious about, it's following the Lord and living the Christian life. Be prepared. Bill Glass, the name means something to some of you. It really doesn't matter. It doesn't mean anything to you. Because I heard him say this in a context where he was speaking to a group of pastors probably. He himself, a graduate of Baylor University, All-American Lineman at Baylor, went on to be an all-pro lineman for the Cleveland Browns. And in the context of this statement, he was encouraging us to be men after God's own heart. And he said, I want to tell you something. It was an all-male audience. He said, men, the hardest season for an athlete is the off-season. There is no off-season for us. I've looked in hopes that there would be from time to time. Can I just take a little time off, Lord? I'm not talking about not coming here to work or being in some place to teach the Bible. I'm not talking about that. I mean, just, just let, me, let me, give me a break, Lord. But what I've found when I have taken the liberty to take a break in that way, it never turns out well. Let me just give you a little insight into me. I know you're very interested in me, so I want to talk about myself a bit. Is that the time I'm most likely to slip off into carnality is on my day off or on vacation. It's true. Now that's not something that I'm destined to continue I'm aware of it, so I try to guard myself against it. But because psychologically I'm thinking, I deserve this. I've earned it. And the Lord wants us to rest, doesn't He? At least once a day, once a week rather, on a day that we have set aside to have a Sabbath, of course. But He wants us to rest. Remember when His apostles had been on a very grueling mission? They came back to him, and when they got back to him, he was just surrounded by needy people, and they were ministering to the people around them. And Jesus said, you don't even have time to eat or drink. Go aside and rest a while, and you'll be rejuvenated. And undoubtedly, when Jesus said that, he was thinking about resting in the Lord. We must be prepared, mustn't we, in order to accomplish what God wants us to accomplish. And the place to begin in that preparation 
is when we awaken in the morning. And maybe even better, with our last thought at night, where we say, Lord, in the morning, I'm looking forward to having fellowship with you. Oh, Lord, help me to awaken alert and eager, knowing that you say in your word through the prophet Isaiah, the Lord has given me the tongue of disciples so that I may know how to respond to the weary one with a word. And he says, morning by morning, he awakens me. To do what? To listen. To listen. And so that's the way we begin to prepare for the next day. To be alone with the Lord. And hear from the Lord. And adjust our lives where need be to his will for our lives. So, priority, prayer, preparation, but punctuality. Now, what does that have to do with living a wholehearted life? It has to do with integrity, for one thing. If I tell you I'm going to be somewhere at some appointed time, and I don't show up, and by the way, I did that one time while I was on vacation. That tells you where I, I was in my mind on vacation. I was supposed to meet someone and all of a sudden I realized I didn't show up. But I was already an hour and a half late so I knew the person wasn't there where we were supposed to meet. I felt so badly. So I'm not speaking from a place of punctuality par excellence, but it should be a goal which we have in our walk with the Lord. We know that Solomon was a wise man. He didn't show his wisdom as he should many times. But he did speak about a kind of person. He called them sluggards. And uh, it's not a pretty picture that the Word of God paints about sluggards. We don't have time to look at all these, but I'm just going to mention two references, and in your leisure time, look them up. Proverbs 22:13, and he talks, and I'm putting this in my own paraphrase, he talks about how the slug always gives excuses for why the slug doesn't start something that the slug knows the slug is supposed to do. Making all kinds of excuses. Well, there's a bear outside, or I'm going to be overtaken by someone who's up to no good and on and on and good. I'll do it later, 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 and later never comes. Then he says, if a sluggard starts something, he's so lazy that he would put his hand down into the dish, it must have been gruel of some sort, put it down in there and doesn't even bring it out to eat it. Do you start things you don't finish? Things you promise you will do to the Lord, for the Lord and other people. Well, it's a good time to start fresh. That's one of the things. We know New Year's Day is just another day. But it has symbolic importance to us as human beings that we can exhale and say, Lord, it's a new year. And I want to be the person you want me to be. And part of that is... When I promise to be somewhere or promise to do something, 
I try my dead level best to be at that place at the appointed time and do what I have said I will do. Alexander the Great, not necessarily a good role model for us, but he said this great conqueror died at the age of 33 of over-intoxication, we're told, some debate about that. But he said, I conquered because I never delayed. And to do him one better, the psalmist in Psalm 119 says this, I hasten and do not delay to keep your commandments. Elizabeth Elliot commenting, this great woman of God, on that verse from Psalm 119, verse 60, said, delayed obedience is disobedience. Isn't that true, parents? We tell our kids to do something. Okay, Daddy. Okay, Mommy. You come back 30 minutes later. I told you to. Yes, I heard you. I'm, I'm going to do it. And they just delay their obedience. And they show a lack of respect. I don't suppose Jesus had a day timer or, or a Fitbit or all the things that help us keep track of our appointments. Jesus worked on the principle of divine appointments. Because remember, Jesus says, I don't do anything except what I hear the Father telling me to do. He came by his own description to do the will of God. And so Jesus is in us if we know him. And by virtue of his being in us, he is the one who gives us appointments. Don't let interruptions wreck your life. People fret. People who are very direct and driven in their lives many times fret. Was there anyone who was more purposeful than the Lord Jesus Christ? When you read the Gospels, I'm going to give one illustration, full of interruption. But he never seemed to be irritated, did he? He had come home after a hard time of ministry, a lot of drain on him spiritually and physically. He's in his home and the people find out he's there and they come to him for healing and for teaching. He preferred teaching over healing, by the way. If you read the gospel, it's clear in that section especially. He did not deny people his healing power, but he came to teach and to preach. And what we see is he goes to help these people. They're outside, they're ganging the house. And all of a sudden, right in the middle of his sermon, it, the roof opens up and this guy's being let down. He's a paralytic and his buddies have brought him there. And Jesus was not irritated. Uh, he healed him miraculously. It was a great moment for that man and for the people who were present. What we know is that Jesus lives in us and he will give you and me the insight we need when interrupted. And don't dismiss interruption as an irritation, but an opportunity that God may have placed in your life to minister to others. And therefore, 
do works that are good, truly good works of faith, and people's lives will be changed by you and by me, and really not by us. We know that. Hopefully you've gotten that from what we've looked at so far. Here's the fifth word, perseverance. Oh, I love that word. I don't demonstrate it nearly enough, but we need to read, ponder, and then practice the passages in the Bible that encourage perseverance. I'm only going to allude to one, Romans chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. Paul says, we exult in our tribulations. What in the world, Paul? Are you telling us that you get happy in the midst of trouble? Well, I don't think he lied. It's in the Word of God. He exulted in his troubles, knowing that tribulations produce proven character. And proven character produces perseverance. And perseverance produces hope. And hope does not disappoint. For God has shed His love abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Would you take some time today? If you don't get anything else out of what I've shared today, take time and really think about that and measure your own response to trouble based upon what the Word of God says. And what happens is we grow by persevering, by not giving up. I was riding, riding somewhere in town, probably it was on Friday, maybe Thursday, and I knew what I was going to be sharing with you this morning, and I saw on the back of a Suburban in the glass in the back, it may have been an expedition, I don't know. I'm not going to be a, a judge of what company it was, but it was, it was a big SUV, and it had the words on it, big white print. I mean, it covered nearly the entire window. It says, don't quit. I said, thank you, Lord, for that message. <laughs> don't quit. It's always too early to quit, isn't it? Never give up. It's what Churchill said when he went back to his alma mater. He was barely a graduate of that school. He had some kind of reading disorder, probably as a child. It was miserable for him. And the young men there, they were cadets. It was sort of military school. And he got up to speak, and they were braced for a great speech. He said, never give up. Never, 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 never give up. And then he sat down. Boy, the student body was excited by the brevity of that, for sure. But the message is clear, isn't it? The Lord says it better than Churchill says it. Don't give up. Here's the last word. And I've talked about this to a certain degree already in different ways. Power is the last word. The Bible tells us in Ecclesiastes 3.14... It says, we know that whatever God does lasts how long? Forever. If we want to have some investment in forever and be part of God's people who have an impact forever, not caring. Look, we're not in this so that our name might appear in some footnote on some 
church history book or anything like that. We don't care. We get to the point when you really follow Jesus, you don't care if you ever get any recognition because you're so committed to His getting all the glory. Remember, that's where we started, isn't it? We're just happy to be part of His team. But whatever He does. Well, how does this work? Well, any of the people in Scripture that we encounter, whom we admire, be sure they had trouble if they were used by God. But be sure that they had the power of God in their lives to help them to accomplish what their mission was. Let's go to Colossians 1, 28 and 29. Colossians 1, 28 and 29. The scripture says in Colossians 1, 28, we proclaim him, that would be Christ, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. Every man. This would be generically. Every man and woman. Every human being that we have opportunity to invest in and to share the good news with and to build up. Every man. Every man. Do you notice that phrase how it's repeated? Every, every, every this is the mission of the church of Jesus Christ. We should care about every person and minister to every person with the goal that we can present every person complete in Christ. And to whom would we present such people? To our Lord. When we stand before Him at the judgment seat of Christ, when we're there before Him, and we can say, if he says, who did you bring with you? And you say, I brought her. And I brought him. I brought them, Lord. In 1 Thessalonians, we're right there. You'll turn back one book to 1 Thessalonians. Look at verses 19 and 20 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Paul is writing to this church at Thessalonia. For who is our hope, our joy, our crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? For you are glory and joy, every man. Now let's go back to first chapter of Colossians and read the last verse, 29. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to His power, which mightily works within me. According to Christ's power, the Holy Spirit's power, the Father's power, which mightily works within me. And by the way, the word translated labor is the word that was the most graphic Description of hard work in the language of the New Testament. When you look at the history of the word and how it changed over time, initially it was the way a person who received a beating was perspiring from being beaten. Then it 
came to be connected to the one who was giving the beating and the exhaustion that would come with giving such a beating. And then it came to do with just good old hard work. I labor. So don't get a mistake in your mind about doing the work of the Lord. It's just so easy. It just flows. Well, certainly there are times that the work of the Lord that we do does flow. But don't think that everything's going to be roses when you get involved in the work of the Lord. Because this word says, I labor. Paul would not use a word that the Holy Spirit didn't give him to give. And then striving is another word. Listen to this word. See if you hear one of our words or a group of words in our language from it. Agonizomai. You hear a word there? Agony, agonize. Striving according to whose power? His power, which mightily works within me. Going back to Daniel as I finish. He, in chapter 2, makes this statement. It's easy to gloss over things we read sometimes. Every word's important. And he says to God, about God, He has given me wisdom and power. Wisdom and power. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, is what the Bible says. We read about fearing the Lord from Psalm 112 to start. And it's a beautiful description, isn't it, of the person who fears the Lord. What a life. Fearing the Lord. But power. The power of God in us to reproduce the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness and gentleness, self-control. Those elements that make us winsome to people who are on the outside looking in. It makes them curious so that we can obey what God says. Always be ready, okay? Be prepared. Always be ready to give an answer to those who ask you why you have hope in your life. And the answer is clear. It's because of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this day to be able to worship you with my brothers and sisters in Christ, to be brought in touch with your word, Lord. We do pray that you would remind us as we have begun this new year not to settle for half-hearted commitment, but be men and women who want a full-hearted commitment. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.